Pinelander Rewatched Podcast is proud to announce the release of a brand new book of short stories from acclaimed Highlander writer Maury Ravinsky. Maury Ravinsky is responsible for penning such Highlander classics such as The Fighter, Brothers in Arms, The End of Innocence, and Unusual Suspects. Maury's new book, The Heart and Other Strangers, is a masterfully executed collection of short fiction. Don't take my word for it. Listen to legendary Highlander producers and writers David Abramowitz, Gillian Horvath, and Donna Leto. You will know from all of his writing, including his Highlander episodes, that this is a man who really understands the inner mythologies that humanity has in common across society. He really explores the questions and connections that drive us. I really admired Maury's writing on Highlander and also his novel Dreamkeeper with Ray. So I followed him to Saskatchewan in the coldest winter in 122 years to work with him on MythQuest. And I don't regret it. I love Maury's book. It had heart and charm, humor and sex and schmaltz, which means it's heart, but it's heart that's dripping with sentiment. The Heart and Other Strangers features 10 brand new stories, such as The Bare Naked Morning of Mama LeBeau, A Placebo Fairy Tale, Little Jeffy's Penis, Doc and the Bungalow Queen, and more. You know, Maury's a wonderful writer and has always been a wonderful writer. He comes at things from a very different angle, from a very interesting angle and a very humorous angle in this, in this book of delightful short stories. I think it's wonderful. Head to theheartandotherstrangers.com to order your paperback or Kindle edition of the book, learn more about the author, and discover Maury's other books, such as his acclaimed debut novel, Dreamkeeper, which was named to the Los Angeles Times Best Books of the Year, or his other book of short stories, Meeting God or Something Like It. The Heart and Other Strangers injects layers upon layer of texture and meaning into every tale. Ravinsky writes that rarest of animals, literature. Order The Heart and Other Strangers today. Pick up a copy of The Heart and Other Strangers. You won't regret it. I urge you to buy Maury Ravinsky's new book. Buy this book before everyone else does. Order your paperback or digital copy at theheartandotherstrangers.com today. Ravinsky is a knowing and wise guide through the ventricles and oracles of the human condition. Enjoy the ride.
rewatchers. Welcome to another episode of Highlander Rewatched. I'm one of your rewatchers. I'm Keith. This is Kyle. This is Eamon. And today we have a special bonus episode. Today we're bringing you one of Adrian Paul's famed Adrian tapes, which he recorded in the mid-90s, which acted kind of as a actor's commentary to some of the behind-the-scenes and trivia and stories and funny anecdotes of the series. This is doubly that, though, because this one is behind behind the scenes. So we're getting an inside scoop on the inside scoop. We got a bunch of tapes that Keith remastered, if you will. That's right. Uh, to bring these to you, the listener. So we hope you enjoyed this episode behind behind the scenes with Adrian Paul. Stick around after the show, and we'll tell you more about our show, Highlander Rewatched. Behind the scenes. Well, I'd like to take you behind behind the scenes because basically there are many things that happened that you never saw on film. Things that happened that you might not have realized had happened. There were many people from Highlander, from production and crew, who took part as extras or small roles in shooting the series. Uh, in for evil's sake, Ray Austin, our esteemed director, was the uh, second man to be killed in the park because the first guy they uh, hired was a lousy actor, so he decided to do the part himself. In Band of Brothers, our sound man was the man you saw in the cemetery scene with the headphones on. In See No Evil, the girl who was attacked instead of Tessa outside the orphan theater was actually her standing. And in For Tomorrow We Die, when you watch me knock the first thug out on the ground, that was my own stunt double. And in The Hunter's flashback, the man who was given the money and was finally killed with a dagger was Patrick Millet, our production manager in Paris, which I think a lot of people wanted to stab him anyway, but that's okay. There are many behind-the-scenes events and new ones that you as an audience member, I think, would like to know how, when, why certain decisions were made as to how the character of Highlander and the show concept were created. I guess when we first started, we all never knew exactly what direction everything was going to go. Clothes, hair pieces, accents, sword work, so... I'm going to try and address them one by one. The first big change I had to deal with when, when I got Highlander was the idea of having long hair. My hair was relatively short at the time, and there were several ways to sort of attach dead pieces of hair to my head. And uh, they decided to come up with the idea of putting a weave in. Now, a weave, I don't know if anybody's had one, is very painful. But for the first month, the one that they put in looked like a rat's tail that hung like a wet fish from the back of my head since the uh, hair was more synthetic in its quality. So by the time we got to Deadly Medicine, we changed it to human hair, and it was put in and weaved into my head. The only problem with that was that every month and a half, you have to have your hair reweaved because your hair grows, so the, the weave gets loose. So you have to have this weave redone. They pull your hair, and half your hair comes out when they're doing it, and you end up having a facelift, whether you like it or not. By the end of the first season, I decided that no more long hair, no more unless I grow my own. So a lot of people said to me in the second season, your hair looked a lot more natural in the second season. Well, that's because it was mine. <laughs> now, the other thing that was a problem for me was trying to decide on what accent McLeod should have in the flashbacks. When I came on, I understood that immortals, having lived for centuries, could speak any language that they wanted. So I figured to give him a little color, Mac could use a different accent depending on the flashback and the time period that he was in. In Sea Witch, I actually had a Russian accent. We should have been on our way by now. It is not easy for people to leave their homes, their books, all they know. Stalin is madman. He kills those he fears and he fears everyone. What is the 
name of this ship? It is called Morskowieszczica. In Road Not Taken, I had more of an English accent. You brought me halfway around the world. But it was worth it to see you. So why are we meeting on holy ground? Are you going to tell me your plan to kill me? And in Family Tree, it was heavy Scottish. You know me, do you not? He recognizes me, but my own flesh and blood does not. They let me wander away from all men. However, the producers thought changing accents would be confusing to the audience. So they persuaded me to only use the Scottish accent when I was doing the flashbacks. But the discussion didn't end there. The Scottish accent then became a problem when the producers thought that no one would understand what Mac was saying. So they asked me to lessen the accent and make it lighter. Are you planning to say goodbye? Goodbye. What have you been doing since I've been gone? Although I thought I was satisfying the production, I started feeling I wasn't doing justice to the character. The weaker the accent got, the less he became the Highlander. It was very hard to manipulate an accent to make it less of one thing and more of another. I remember standing on the set and having a 40-minute telephone conversation with Marla Ginsburg, who wanted to lose the accent altogether. I tried to explain to her why McLeod should have an accent. There were valid points for not having it, but as an actor, to justify a role, I have to portray all aspects of him, otherwise I'm only playing half a character. The accent was an integral part of Duncan MacLeod. This was something I believed in, and it was going to take a lot to dissuade me. In rehearsals, I did try to do Duncan without an accent, but then I didn't know who the man was anymore. So, in talking with Bill Panza, we agreed that up to the point of 1815, before MacLeod came to America, he would have a Scottish accent. Obviously, from the period of 1817 to 1850, he was traveling between Europe and America, so his accent would diminish a little. After that, it would become the accent that I have in the present day. So finally, after all this time, it took us almost the first season to figure out exactly what accent McLeod should have, and when to do it, and when not to. The funny thing is, three weeks after the decision, a poll proved more people wanted to hear Duncan McLeod of the Clan McLeod in a Scottish accent. The next thing that was a discussion on Highlander when we first started was wearing an earring. Uh, I figured that McLeod, having lived 400 years, was quite a flamboyant character. And uh, wearing an earring was something that maybe part of his uh, persona, having lived for 400 years. However, the producers thought it was uh, feminine. There were many discussions regarding the uh, different countries as to uh, who thought wearing an earring was masculine or not. So if you look in Road Not Taken, McLeod isn't wearing an earring in one scene, and he is wearing an earring in another. And the reason for that was because we were shooting inside Kim Song's palace, and the producers came on the set and they said, take the earring off now. And I said, but I've done a scene already with it on. This doesn't matter, but we've been told by the higher-ups that we have to take it off now. So the continuity in that one is actually something that was done because of the idea that McLeod would be a little feminine if he wore an earring. Basically, I want to know who squealed. There were many other scenes that we shot that to the naked eye come across as scripted ideas. However, um, accidents in production problems caused them to be shot one way or another. In Band of Brothers, if you look carefully, the scene between Darius, played by Werner Stockhart, and Grayson, played by James Horan, 
uh, was actually shot in both Vancouver and Paris because the two actors never met. James was doing his lines in Vancouver to the camera box and Werner was doing his lines off camera to somebody else while he was in Paris. So the two actors, although they were supposed to be arch rivals, were never in the same country together. In another episode, Nowhere to Run, Dennis Berry wanted to keep a sense of mysticism and danger by adding fog everywhere, which he tends to do quite frequently. However, in this particular instance, it caused us to loop nearly three-quarters of the show because everything that we were saying in exterior scenes was accompanied by the sound of smoke machines. Unfortunately, the main actor's entire performance had to be looped and revoiced by another actor because he was unavailable at the time to do his own looping. This is what the actor's voice sounded like. you heard was this. You killed a good man, McLeod. Five, Everett. Then give me the sun. Haven't you had enough of death? Quite a difference, huh? The most poignant moment for me in year one, and never reached the screen and not many people know about, occurred while shooting the show Beast Below. It was the time that Rudolf Nureyev died, and we happened to be shooting in the Paris Opera, and I was shooting a scene with Dee Dee Bridgewater, and it happened to be in Rudolf Nureyev's dressing room. It was creepy. I guess art imitates life, or life imitates art. The stunt department, I think, had one of the funniest events that I can remember. It involved uh, John Wardlow, who was a stunt coordinator in Vancouver. In eyewitness, in the scene where Richie's following Tessa to the safe house, John was the police officer who had to uh, drive the car into frame and block Richie's path. Well, in take one, he overshot the mark. So the director said, cut, cut, let's do it again. In take two, he overshot the mark again. In take three, he undershot the mark. So by this time, I think he was relatively nervous of actually being on camera. In take four, he hit his mark, pulled the gun out, went to say, freeze, but then forgot that the window was closed bounced the gun off the window and hit himself in the head with it. Now, the sword department with uh, Bob Anderson, who did the first 13 shows in uh, Vancouver, and Peter Diamond, who did the other nine in Paris, worked together for many years, although Bob was more the artist and Peter was more, more the technician. Bob and Peter, I was sure we'd actually get them into the show sooner or later, which we did. Uh, if you watch Deadly Medicine, Bob was the guy who got beaten up by the guys who ran me over in the car. And Peter was the dastardly church robber who killed Darius in the church in Band of Brothers. Since they both knew each other very well, I knew after the first year that Bob had told Peter about some favorable reports about how he enjoyed working with me and my ability with the sword. So Peter was looking quite forward to working with me. And uh, when I first uh, started working with him, he, I, think, I think he jinxed it when he said to me, uh, you know, I've only been hurt twice in my career by an actor, once when an actor stabbed me in the leg. Well, it only took about 40 minutes for me to actually catch him on the hand, making me the, the third and final uh, uh, culprit. However, he did return the favor while he was shooting the fight by actually clipping me on the arm. A great behind-behind-the-scenes story was the practical joke Stan tried to play on me during the shooting of Band of Brothers at the end of the Vancouver section in the first year. It was the last night of shooting, 
and we were filming the scene between James Horan and myself where we were just about to fight and got stopped by headlights that approached us. And I was sort of concentrating on the saw techniques and the dialogue because it's quite a tricky set of moves to do everything in one camera move, which Renee wanted to do. When I noticed a long-legged blonde girl strolling along and sitting herself in one of the chairs. And she was accompanied by a girlfriend of Stan's who I'd met before and who had actually been on the show. And uh, she um, sat next to her and I thought, strange, I don't think we have any extras later on today because this must be the last scene. Maybe, or maybe they've come to see Stan. They're waiting for Stan. Now that's what it is. So I continued doing the shots and then in between the take, I strolled over to where they were sitting. My wife was sitting at the time and I sat next to my wife and Stan's girlfriend introduced this girl who was sitting about, well, I'd say 20 feet away, sort of trying to ignore me and uh, said, oh, this is Patricia. I said, hello. He, and uh, she said, hi. And she's sort of smoking a cigarette from the side. And I thought, something very odd about this girl. I'm quite sure what it is, but it's something very strange. Anyway, this sort of happened over a couple of minutes, and I got back up. I had the next take to do, and I walked back on set, and I saw James Horan, and I said, did you see that girl over there? It's very odd. And he said, yeah, I know. Isn't it funny? I said, it was funny. He said, well, you know who that is, don't you? I said, no. He said, I'll give you three guesses. Suddenly, it just clicked. Everything clicked. It was Stan. Stan had dressed himself up as a woman. And he decided that to play a trick, they were going to film it and to either play a trick like he was an ardent fan of the Highlander and to see what, how I would take it in the middle of, of the shooting and how I'd push it off. And uh, I went, oh, really? Okay, so I let it ride. I didn't say anything. But I kept my eye out because I knew something was going to happen very shortly. And then I suddenly felt the movement change amongst the crew and everybody. I thought, oh, here it comes. And uh, I saw the leggy blonde and, and uh, Stan's girlfriend walking up to me. And she said, oh, Patricia wants to say hello to you. And he ran up to me. And just before he grabbed me, I went, hello, Stan. And he, the look on his face, it dropped about a foot and a half. He went, what? How did you know? Someone told you. Oh, no. But uh, he was so disappointed because he spent hours that day trying to figure out what dress he was going to wear, whether he was going to wear high heels or fishnet stockings, what wig he was going to have on. His, you know, I mean, it's scary, but you know, I mean, the way he actually practiced for hours walking up and down. And in actuality, my wife filmed the entire thing of him getting ready. And later on, he said, oh, let me see the tape, let me see the tape. I said, Stan, you're going to give it back to me, aren't you? And he said, sure, sure, sure. So I gave him the tape, and months went by, and he never even called me. And I thought, he's done something to this tape. And finally, I called him and caught him in one day, and I said, you got my tape? And he said, uh, I destroyed it. I said, you did what? He said, well, I'm sorry, there wasn't anything else on the tape, but I can't have that tape out there. I can't have that tape out there. And I thought, all right, Stan, your career's on the line. I'll let you off this one. But practical jokes weren't the only thing that caused laughter on the set. Sometimes actors made mistakes, too. Even me. And sometimes it was the simplest of things. In the gathering when I first felt the buzz and skulked bare-chested through the antique store to find Richie pilfering the goods, I stood there, sword in hand, to utter the immortal challenge. I'm Connor McLeod of the Clan McLeod. No, I'm not. I'm Duncan McLeod of the Clan McLeod. Hey, that's a good idea. Hey, get me Bill Panzer on the phone. Tell him I've got this great idea. Tell him it's fabulous. <laughs> Thanks, everybody, for joining us this week. We hope you enjoyed that look from Adrian Paul. 
behind behind the scenes. And if you want to go behind behind this production, you can listen to the rest of our exciting episodes here from the Highlander Rewatched crew. That's right. Head on over to iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you find podcasts, and you can subscribe for free. And we have well over 100 episodes of brand new Highlander content coming to you every single week. Not to mention special exclusive bonuses like this very Adrian tape, not to mention a host of others we've already released, and exciting chronicles where we talk to the cast and crew of Highlander fame. So thanks again for listening, and we hope to catch you next week. We've been your rewatchers. I'm Keith. This is Kyle. And this is Eamon. Bye. Bye.